Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one. There's a few there in the pews in front of you. One of those black Bibles, uh, page 835 in that Bible. And uh, if you don't own a Bible of your own, we would love for you to take that as a gift from us so that you can have God's Word with you. We're going to be looking this morning at John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26, living water from the Messiah. We have been uh, in an exposition of the Gospel of John together on uh, Sunday morning. took a brief break last week, but we're back in this morning in John chapter 4. Interestingly, back in John chapter 2, we saw where there were those who were believing in Jesus' name because of the signs that he was doing. And what Jesus does there is not commit himself to them because he knows the hearts of men. And from there, we um, see two conversations, really, that are um, different kinds of uh, people, but very similar conversations. We saw in John chapter 3 a conversation with Nicodemus. Uh, A Pharisee, uh, one who would have been characterized uh, by sort of self-righteousness. And over against that, in John chapter 4, we see a conversation with a a woman who does not have the best reputation, uh, who not only is that, but also is a Samaritan. Uh, And so there are uh, issues, if you will, with that we're going to see this morning. Uh, But she would have been one who was a very evident sinner. Uh, She could not have claimed uh, the sort of self-righteousness that uh, the Pharisee Nicodemus uh, could have claimed. And we see some um, parallels, some comparisons in this conversation that Jesus has with her in our text today. So if you're able to, would you please stand? I'm going to read from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And then uh, we will study this together after we pray. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John the Apostle writes, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. You may be seated. That is the word of God in the New Testament reading. May it be a blessing to you as you've heard it both in the Old Testament and New Testament reading this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, this morning we are once again reminded that we need your help as we open your word. We know and believe that uh, the words that we read this morning are reliable translations of uh, the original as it's been passed down to us through manuscripts. Um, And we know that in the original autographs it was inspired by your Holy Spirit. So we ask, Lord, now for those of us who know you, that your Holy Spirit who dwells within us would also attend to our time, would open our eyes uh, to the truths found here. And as well, Lord, make application that we would obey and submit uh, to the truths that we see here today. And uh, Lord, I pray for those who do not know you this morning in our midst, that your Holy Spirit would 
awaken them to new life, that you would regenerate them, Lord. Bring them to saving faith this morning, we pray. Lord, I pray that you would continue to humble me. pray that you would hide me behind the cross and the empty tomb. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I lived in Chicago in the mid-90s, situated next to Moody Bible Institute was a place called Cabrini Green. It was a housing project that literally sat right up against the backside of Moody's campus. It had, 20 years previous to my arrival, become known as the worst housing project in the U.S. It's hard to know if this was actually true, but it was publicized as so in the media. Therefore, it almost became a self-fulfilling prophecy. So much so, in fact, that not long after my arrival in Chicago, there were already plans to begin demolishing uh, the, the housing projects known as Cabrini Green, which was completed in 2011. While I lived there, however, it was definitely one of those neighborhoods. You know what I mean? Somewhere where even during the day you were warned not to walk. One of the great things, though, despite this, was Moody, Moody Bible Institute, the students of Moody, had a presence there. I had friends who participated in the Big Brother and Big Sisters Club, and friends who would because of their connections through Big Brother and Big Sisters, would do Bible study in Cabrini Green. And there were times when young wannabes, that's wannabe gang members, would come and harass my friends uh, as they were doing these Bible studies with young kids. And the interesting thing that happened was the real gang members, the gangster disciples, that's the name of the gang that was associated with Cabrini Green, would come and tell the wannabe gang members to leave the guys who were doing the Bible study alone because they were doing good for the community. You see, kids in Cabrini-Green grew up and you were affiliated with that gang just for being born there. And it was not a safe neighborhood. Men, women, children were often killed there. Yet, my friends and people who love the Lord walked into that place. Uh, Some of my dear friends knew the risk of hanging out there. But they also knew that besides the crime and the danger, and there really was danger, there were people who needed to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. They had to go there. They had to. They were compelled by the Lord to go there. We'll see in our text today that Jesus had a divine appointment with a woman who was in the kind of neighborhood Jesus and the Jews would normally not go into. But Jesus had to go there. He had a divine appointment to go there. And people were there that needed to hear the good news of who he is. And what he came to do. And as we look back upon it, what he came to do and accomplished. Here's the main point. You can see this written on the back of your worship folder there. God's saving grace through Jesus Christ extends beyond mankind's prejudices and reaches the vilest offenders, including you and me. God's saving grace through Jesus Christ extends beyond mankind's prejudices and reaches the vilest offenders. 
And we must see ourselves as those who have violated God's perfect law and His holiness as well. I want us to see this morning six details of Jesus' interaction with a Samaritan woman. Six details of Jesus' interaction with a Samaritan woman. You say six, Jason, normally your sermons are three points. Are we going to get through this? We will. They're short points. But it's a way to break down the passage this morning. Number one, we see a purposeful journey in verses one through six. In verses one through three, we see the reason that Jesus moves on. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, Jesus' ministry is not static. He very rarely stays in one place, but anywhere that he goes, people come to see him. But he's on the move and he is proclaiming the kingdom. And we see here today a move that Jesus makes that is outside of what is normal uh, for what the people would have assumed the Messiah should have done. The reason for the move here is twofold. Number one, Jesus knew the Pharisees would not be happy about his ministry growing. This actually comes up later in other texts. Um, There becomes a great frustration with the fact that many people are following Jesus and the the religious leaders uh, begin to uh, persecute him. They begin to test him. And we'll see that as time moves on. So as he learns this, he moves on from this baptismal ministry, identifying not only with, uh, yes, John's baptism, that he is uh, the coming Messiah, but also a baptism that identifies with his message concerning the kingdom. We recognize that Jesus, as I said, the last time we were in uh, John, it speaks about him baptizing, but really it's his disciples baptizing. Um, and and uh, can you imagine in the early church people being able to claim that Jesus had baptized them? Um, that's probably the reason why he himself did not do that. But another reason for him moving on <clears throat> into another region is there were those that needed to hear the good news. Those who the Jews themselves would not want to go to. It says he had to go through Samaria. Now, while it is popular to believe that Jews normally took a longer route to avoid going through Samaria, uh, that is not uh, entirely true. Um, D.A. Carson quotes Josephus, who would have written just shortly after Jesus' ascension. He was a historian. He says something different. He says that it was the shortest route, and so many times they did. But later on in the text, it says that they didn't have dealings with the Samaritans. Now, once again, we must recognize this isn't zero dealings whatsoever, because we later on see that the disciples go in to get food, and so they must have exchanged something. But Samaritans were seen as unclean because they were a mixed breed. They were Jewish and Assyrian together. And so they were seen as unclean, especially by the Pharisees. Isn't it funny to think about the Pharisees in some sense sort of chasing Jesus away from his ministry uh, in one way or another? And now he goes to a place that they would never think to interact in the way that Jesus does in this passage. The vitriol is mutual, by the way. The Samaritans don't really like dealing with the Jews either because they were treated so poorly by them. And then John gives us this exact geographic location. The purposefulness of this cannot be overlooked. It says that he went to Jacob's well, and he was wearied from his journey, and he was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour, either noon or six o'clock at night. Either way, it would have been a long journey, two or three day journey, from where Jesus had been to now being at Sychar. This is likely a well that is fed underground by springs, which has implications for what Jesus says here in a moment. 
And we also recognize the tie-in with Jacob, who is uh, the patriarch, one of the patriarchs of Israel. And so we'll see the significance of this in just a moment. But we also see that Jesus is wearied from his journey. We cannot also overlook the humanity of Jesus that is given here. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Uh, This is a a, a massive emphasis that uh, the Apostle John has in this gospel. That Jesus is truly God. John chapter 1 and verse 1 as we, we saw back in that study. And also that Jesus is truly man. The deity of Christ in his incarnation. Jesus gets tired. He thirsts. He has to deal with external temptations. And I believe we can see this as a time where Jesus uh, was tempted externally yet again. Remember, in, I think it's in Luke's gospel where it says that, that, that Satan leaves him after the temptation looking for another time to tempt him. Jesus was tempted, yet without sin, the scriptures say we have to remember that. And so, here we see Jesus as the God-man, truly experiencing what we as humanity experience. Weariness, tiresomeness, thirst, hunger. The disciples have gone into the city to get food. He experienced what we experience. External temptation. Uh, we, We know this, don't we? Let's be transparent this morning. We are sometimes at our... Um, worst place for temptation when we are weak, when we are tired, when we are hungry. Here we see Jesus facing what has to be a difficult time once again in his humanity. And yet we recall that he is tempted without sin. We move on from this first divine appointment point about him having to go through Samaria now to a culturally odd request, as our second point is. A culturally odd request. Look at verses 7 through 9. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Here's the reason why. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Let me just pause for a moment and say, um, most entourages like the ones that are traveling with Jesus would have had a uh, sort of an animal skin water receptacle that they could have put down into the well to get water. Uh, likely the disciples had that with them. Here comes this woman with the instruments to be able to provide Jesus with a drink. Notice her response. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. John gives us that note. First we see this, you, a Jew. How is it that you, one who is a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, and beyond that, a woman, for a drink? And then John gives us this textual note. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's interesting in the original language there, this idea of dealings, Um, cannot mean no dealings whatsoever, because again, the disciples have gone into town to purchase food. It's it's an interesting word there in the original that it means um, instrument or utensil. Um, So quite literally, it seems as if the idea would be, not only are you asking me 
as you being a Jew, me being a Samaritan, culturally not really kosher. On top of that, usually Jewish men didn't really speak with Jewish women even in public because it was seen as flirtatious in that um, culture. Beyond that, I'm a Samaritan woman, so that makes it even stranger. And now you're asking me to use an instrument um, that you would see as unclean to put it down in the water to get, get water for you. Very strange. It's a very strange request. It was actually, culturally, something that would have been looked at by the Pharisees as extremely inappropriate. However, it wasn't a sin. And we know that not only because that would be ridiculous, it wasn't a sin because Jesus cannot sin. And he asks her for water. Even though this was a cultural faux pas, Jesus is certainly doing not only what is right, but also what is the will of his Father. Look ahead to verse 34. We're going to get to this next week. The disciples come back with food and they say, Rabbi, eat, verse 31. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus was doing what was appointed to him by the Father. There was a twofold, again, Uh, cultural inappropriateness of this. One was that she was a woman. Um, It was culturally inappropriate for men to talk publicly with women, even their own wives sometimes. It was looked down upon, much less a woman of less than favorable reputation, which we find out she is in just a moment. Secondly, again, it was against Jewish culture to deal with a Samaritan. Samaritans were considered half-breeds by the Jews, Because they were those who intermarried with the Assyrians after the Assyrian capture. Since since therefore they were not pure-blooded, they were despised. And again, this was a mutual feeling. Samaritans did not care for the Jews either because of the mistreatment, because of the way that they were looked at even concerning the promises of Abraham. Here we see Jesus not only stepping over a cultural boundary, but also a Jewish theological boundary concerning the kingdom. Again, the assumption is that the kingdom is going to come to Israel alone. And here is Jesus going to not only non-Israelites, as it were, but actually people who would have been looked at as half-bloods, mixed-blood Jews. It would have been bad enough had he gone to a Gentile nation beyond the borders, but he's going to those who are impure and unclean and sort of half Jewish. Here is the first hint in the Gospel of John that the kingdom is not restricted to Israel alone. In fact, here are the enemies of Israel, as it were, the despised by Israel, as it were. And Jesus is not only talking with her, he is revealing who he is to her, as we shall see. And the first step in this revelation of who she is, is number three on your outline there, a miraculous offer. A miraculous offer. 
As we saw with Nicodemus, Jesus is really good at uh, flipping the script, as the kids say today. He takes his request and her question and turns it back to who he is and what he has come to accomplish. Look at it with me. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman who is of Samaria? Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Living water. If you knew the gift of God. Likely referring not only to the good news, but who is the good news about? It is about he himself. Jesus is the embodiment of the good news. Good news concerning the kingdom as he has been preaching. Uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is present. The, the beginnings of the kingdom are here. And if you had known who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. This most certainly raises the question in her mind. Who is this? Who is this man? Imagine being a woman who we come to find out has the reputation that she has. She's walking up to this well, sees a man uh, sitting there, um, begins as she gets closer to realize that this is not just any man, this is a Jewish man. Likely she's coming there alone because of her reputation. But she sees a, a Jewish man and thinks, oh my, what is this going to be like? This isn't a man from Sychar. This is an outsider and he's all alone. What will happen here? And then he speaks with her. And then he asks her for something that was not usual in that culture. And now he is offering her something. He says, you would have asked and he would give you living water. Now, you have to understand in the original language here, the word living water is not something that would have caught her off guard. Living water? Oh my goodness, what is that? She wouldn't have had the response she had. No, in one sense, living water is water that flows in, in, in the original language here. As I said, uh, likely this well was fed by an underground spring. Uh, some commentators think that <clears throat> this would have been about a hundred foot deep well uh, that would have reached those um, springs below. And so living water uh, is flowing water. But Jesus also has a, a second meaning to this water that is living. Of course, he means eternal life. Notice as we go on here, <clears throat> the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? So notice her first response isn't, what, what are you talking about, living water? She's saying, well, I see that you're here at this well. This is the closest source of water that is flowing, yet you have nothing to retrieve it with. Where are you going to get this water from? And she's still thinking the idea of a spring that provides water. And then she says, um, are you going to dig a well deeper than Jacob dug to get to living water? I mean, there's a well right here. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Are you greater than our forefather? 
In the minds of the Jews and the Samaritans, there are certain men of promise. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a well of promise. This is a cherished memoir of not only Israel, who would have claimed the right to this well, but also even these uh, Samaritans. They would rest their hope in the promise of what this well symbolizes to their people. Jesus uses this opportunity to answer her question positively, but in detail. Look at what he says. After she says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it, and as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give them will never be thirsty again. So in essence, what Jesus says here to answer her question is, Yes, I am greater than Jacob. In fact, I am the one to whom Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have pointed to. You see, Jacob could only give you water that you daily have to come out here and drink from and draw from. I can give you water that will satisfy you forever. In the minds of the Jews and the Samaritans, they had a promise in, in mind. Jesus is saying, I'm the greater promise. I am the one in whom Jacob hoped. The water that Jacob gave you leaves you thirsty. I bring you water in which you will never thirst again. And in fact, it will spring up a well, of, a well inside of you that brings eternal life. Look at it again. The latter half of verse 14, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Is this beginning to sound a little bit like a conversation that Jesus has had with Nicodemus? Water, eternal life. Water, the washing away of sin in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Water that washes away, symbolically, not literally, by the ministry of the Spirit. It says, unless one is born of water and spirit to be regenerated, to be washed. The washing away of sin, the springing within, the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 44, 3 and 5 says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and the name himself, and name himself by the name of Israel. You see the echoes of this in the Old Covenant. This idea that waters would flow. Yes, in a sense, in a dry land. Jacob provided that, did he not? But what about this pouring out of the Spirit? Only the one who is greater than Jacob can do that. Jesus is speaking about eternal life, which, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, is seeing and entering the kingdom of God. Oh, how she wants 
this living water. But she has not quite yet understood the reality of what Jesus is saying. Though she needs to understand the good news, she must also understand first the bad news. So there is, fourthly, an unveiling of sin. An unveiling of sin in verses 16 through 18. Sir, she says, give me this water in verse 15 so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus now has to talk about the reality of what he is saying here. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And Jesus is so capable, isn't he? By God's will, through the Spirit and his humanity, He's able to pierce right to the very heart of the matter. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. You have had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus unveils sin here. Now we have to understand and see something here. Jesus has been so honorable and respectable to her probably far beyond anything she has experienced, even in her own city. I mean, five husbands and now a sixth man who is not her husband. She would have been looked down upon. Again, likely she's at the well because no one. she doesn't want to have to endure the stares, the ridicule possibly. Jesus has treated her with such honor and respect, even in crossing This cultural faux pas, he has been gracious to her. And now, because he is loving and truthful, he gets at the heart of the matter, which is her sin. Provocatively, Jesus asks her to go and get her husband and bring him back. Perhaps Jesus is, in one one sense, doing this to remedy this cultural faux pas. But it is certainly an opportunity for Jesus to bring light to her sin. This is what Jesus comes into the world to do. John says this in John chapter 1. Bring light to every man. And many run from the light because their deeds are dark and they don't want the light to expose their darkness. But those who come to the light do so because they want to show that it is God who has done this work in them. So she takes the first step in admitting That she has no husband, but does not reveal all. Because what does she say in verse 19? Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. He is able to glimpse into her heart and she knows it. Jesus reveals what he knows about her. First, we're given a glimpse of his humanity. He's tired, he's exhausted, he's thirsty, he's hungry. Now we see his divinity. John does this throughout the entire gospel. He shows us Jesus' true humanity, and then he shows us Jesus' true divinity, his true being God. Jesus is truly God and truly man. He is in his incarnation still existing as God, and in the great Trinitarian plan, able to give insight into this woman's life. And we are reminded by this that nothing is hidden from God. And we cannot expect that God does not know our deepest, darkest sins. And yet, even with this woman, even as he exposes her sin, he is offering hope. 
He knows this about her and yet still offers her living water. Do you see that? He makes the offer of living water before he ever even exposes the fact that he knows that she is a sinner. He offers her eternal life. In fact, he, in fact, she must see how this water must cleanse her and how she needs it. She is clearly taken back by this and seeks to steer the conversation back to Jesus, as we see in our next point, an attempted diversion. She admits here, as I said in verse 19, that he is correct. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. You got it right. But let me ask you something else. <laughs> Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. Fair enough. This is a good question. I have a theological query for you. I perceive that you're a prophet, so let me ask you something. There's this dispute amongst the Jews and the Samaritans about where we ought to worship. You say it's here. We say it's here. This happens to you in your gospel presentations, doesn't it? When you're sharing the good news with somebody, they want to steer the question of some theological controversy. You say, we're all sinners. They say, yeah, but what about the Nephilim? (laughs) But her question is actually a serious one, which continues to draw the distinction between Jews and Samaritans. Her question is one about worship. I mean, surely this is an important matter, isn't it? Worshiping God? The Samaritans would have held that Yahweh is God. Even though uh, there was an Assyrian infiltration, it seems as if the Samaritans uh, moved back towards worship of Yahweh. But Jesus is able to bring this theological question back around again. In fact, he does so by correcting her theology. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. He corrects her theology. Worship is not ultimately about a place Worship is ultimately about a who. God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, you as a Samaritan worship what you do not know. Interestingly, uh, we've ju- I just said they worship Yahweh God, but Samaritans only um, believed that the Torah, the, the first five books, the Pentateuch, was only the true scripture. They didn't believe in the prophets or the writings to extrapolate this and point to who the Messiah is. Though, interestingly, she brings up the issue of Messiah in a little bit. So we know that Messiah is in Torah. But the the prophets and the writings, they don't want to have anything to do with. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. It's coming, Jesus says, and is now here. True worshipers worship in spirit and truth. Salvation is of the Jews, and all that is in the religion of the Old Testament points to this reality, truth, but something that is going to happen uh, in in regard to this, a, a spirit that comes and is poured out like living water that washes you clean, renewing you, regenerating you, and indwelling you. The Father is 
seeking such people, people who are worshiping him in spirit and in truth. This is an amazing truth, and it's wrapped up in new covenant language. Listen to again. I know we've read this often, but it's so important. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The spirit is given. They are washed clean and they are walking in truth. This leads the woman to suspect something about Jesus, which is what we see in our final point, an amazing revelation, an amazing revelation. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. And John gives us this little footnote here. He who is called the Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. What an amazing jump here from strange Jewish man talking to me at the well to a prophet to the Messiah. Possibly, is this who this is? Seems as if this woman is beginning to suspect not only that he is a prophet, but is the prophet. As D.A. Carson explains, Samaritans held that the one who would come was the Taheb, the restorer, one who would reveal truth. This is what she is implying by saying, he will tell us all things. In light of this, it is interesting that Jesus tells her that true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. It's not enough that they understand the truth. I mean, that's what she's saying. Uh, If we're talking about spirit and truth here, strange man on the edge of the well, who is clearly a prophet and perhaps the Messiah, We know that Messiah is coming and he's going to give us truth. But Jesus says, no, 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 it's not just about truth. It's about spirit and truth. They must be spiritually reborn, spiritually regenerated, as Jesus told Nicodemus. He does not mince words here. Look at what he says after she says this. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Literally, Jesus says, I am. I who am speaking to you, I am. This is one of the seven I am statements of the Gospel of John. Important because it becomes a mark of Jesus conveying that he is deity, that he is God. More than this, Jesus has already relocated the place of worship away from a physical temple to himself. Back in John chapter 2 and verse 19, when he says to the Pharisees, if you tear this temple down in three days, I will rebuild it. Jesus has relocated the place of worship to him. And he is now saying to this woman, I am. Jesus reveals more here than he has up to this moment. And isn't this interesting? Not only does he do so to a woman, but to a Samaritan woman, no less. He is the Messiah. He is the great I Am. The name that God tells Moses to tell the children of Israel is delivering them. He is the temple 
Worship occurs through Christ by the indwelling of the Spirit. He is now calling someone who is not a full Jew to believe in Him. The nations will come to drink from this well of living water. Keep your finger in John and make a big left-hand turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 55. Let me just say again, He is Messiah. He has just proclaimed that He is the great I Am. He's relocated the temple, the place of worship in in John chapter 2 and verse 19 to Him. And now He's saying those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. And it's moved away from a place to a person. And He has done this to one who is not a pure Israelite. But listen to Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here. That which that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Listen to this. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know you shall run to, because the Lord Yahweh your God, and of the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord Yahweh that he may have compassion on him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than yours. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Who is the sent word? Of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make the name, make a name for the Lord Yahweh an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Isaiah 55 is bursting forth before this woman's eyes. Who is she? Who is she that she should be given this opportunity for Messiah God to explain to her living water, spiritual life, in the eyes of any religious leader, 
in Jesus' day, she's a dog. Jesus graciously honors and respects her as a woman, even a Samaritan woman, even a woman who has the reputation that she has even in her own town. And he says to her, I can give you living water. I am the Messiah. I am. Who is she? She's one who, unlike the self-righteous Pharisees, understands why she needs this living water And Jesus, before her eyes, proclaims Isaiah 55. I have a friend today who still is in touch with her little sister from Cabrini Green, way back in our days in Chicago. She's obviously not a little sister anymore. She's grown. And for all my friend can tell is living her life for Christ. Perhaps she is the only one, but I doubt it. My friend introduced her to Messiah Jesus. And it's likely she, like the Samaritan woman, went and told others, as we'll see next week. What about you? Are you one who has trusted in Christ? If you are, are you trusting solely in Him? The good news does not come without the bad news. All of us are sinners. We may not have five spouses in our past, but we... All have fallen short of God's glorious standard. The good news. Only one has never sinned and has gone to the place that we deserved, death on the cross, and received the punishment that we deserved for sins we committed against Him. Are you trusting in that alone today? Are you worshiping in spirit and in truth because the Spirit dwells within you and God has revealed the truth to you? Are you telling others? Are you wandering into places where no one else is wandering because of cultural inappropriateness or something along those lines? Are you willing to go to those that others are unwilling to go to? Are you willing to risk your life for the sake of the gospel? Are you reminding your brothers and sisters in this local assembly that the only satisfaction of the soul is found in the completed work of Jesus Christ and it is in Him alone that we find that? Him alone that our thirst is quenched. Him alone that we find full satisfaction, enjoyment in this life. Dear ones, grab hold of that today. Find your joy and your satisfaction in that. Certainly God gives us good gifts. I look around this room, so many good friends who want to encourage me to walk in holiness and to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But it's ultimately about Him, about His glory and our joy in that glory. Perhaps you've never drunk from this well of living water. You've never admitted your sin to God and trusted in His work through His Son alone. I would encourage you to come and talk with Pastor Steve after we're done singing our song this morning so he might be able to pray with you and tell you what it means to be in Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, those of us who know you know that you have given us a spirit Your spirit that is like a well within us 
springing up. We have hope, Lord, not wishful thinking, but we know that we will be with you. We know that our sins have been forgiven. We know that we can walk in righteousness. Lord, help us with that and help us to point others to that in our own local assembly here. And then help us to go forth, Lord, and to proclaim the good news. Give us opportunity to speak with those maybe who nobody else is willing to speak with. And then, Lord, I pray for those who are in our midst that do not know you, that today would be the day that you would give them a new heart, that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.